0: Whose opinion matters? I want you to think about that just for a second. Whose opinion matters? I'll give you one example. My car turns 20 next year. I was talking about this with someone just last week after church, actually. Um, And of all the new cars that I've enjoyed over time, I think this old banger makes me smile in ways that I haven't smiled with other cars in the past. And I'll give you a couple of reasons why. Uh, mechanically, it's fine, boring, but fine. Um, the paintwork, on the other hand, is marginal at best. The upholstery is tattered. The air conditioning controls, though they point us back to a... a, a a better time because it doesn't work. In fact, while we're on the subject of things that don't work, the clock, the radio, in fact, pretty much all of the internal electricals, they force you to be creative uh, and to imagine how good it would be if they worked, which they don't. And yet, on most days, I will accommodate these irritations as charming quirks, if only for the privilege of being able to pull into a crowded car park. And I ask myself the question, Dougal, are you feeling lucky? Will I lock it or will I leave it open? The trouble is, by the time I've resolved the question, I've already walked off. Now, an outsider, you might look at my car and describe it as a worthless piece of junk. Okay. But my assessment is far more positive. Every kilometre is a bonus. Every return journey is a cause for thanksgiving. Our passage is a serious one, but what I'm trying to get you to think about is whose opinion matters. Whose opinion matters? Because in our series, in Matthew's Gospel, we've reached the point in our series where the Lord Jesus has been rejected. He's been rejected by the elites. He's been rejected by your everyday person on the street. Despite only ever doing good, Jesus has been written off as a dangerous, law-breaking, evildoer who must die. And yet, suddenly, as if out of nowhere, we get this description, this new perspective from Matthew, as we get the Father's assessment of the Son Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. At a dark turning point in Matthew's account, we're reminded of the only opinion that matters, as the Father expresses his delight in the son that's been rejected by the world and so we need to start with the world's assessment our previous episode I got just to to begin where our our session last week finished think of it we're in a, a crowded synagogue we've got a man with a shriveled hand then verse 13 he Jesus said to the man stretch out your hand Jesus has had enough so he stretched it out. It was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and they plotted how they might kill Jesus. Having ignored the man-made Sabbath rules imposed by the elites, it's decided that Jesus must go. Matthew, our gospel writer, he captures the tone. You can see it there. They plotted how they might kill Jesus. The decision's been made. All that's left now is To work out the details, which makes it ironic, I think, how these Pharisees are willing to compromise the sixth commandment, not to murder, in order to uphold their legalistic understanding of the fourth commandment to uphold the Sabbath. I think that's ironic. But then again, this whole Sabbath controversy that we looked at last week, it was a stitch-up from the beginning, because if you've been with us during this series, you'll know how this murderous crescendo has been building for some time now. If you think back to chapter 9, Jesus forgives the paralysed man. Do you remember the guys bring the paralysed guy to Jesus? Everybody's expecting Jesus to say, get up and walk, which he will. But the first thing he says is, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Instantly, the, the Pharisees who are watching on, they get called out by Jesus. Knowing their thoughts, said Jesus, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Now, I said it at the time, this is the first sign of opposition. But entertaining evil thoughts is the first step. It's the gateway to evil actions. And so it is. In the very next section, the Pharisees begin to express their contempt of Jesus. They ask the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They are totally stumped. By the way, Jesus is able to mix freely with these outcasts, these so-to-say sinners. And the presumption is that by hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus lacks wisdom. Or worse, guilt by association. If he hangs out with them, well, then he must be like them. But Jesus is completely unfazed by all of these reputational slurs and this just gives him a chance to deliver one of his more famous lines it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick but you can see the direction that these interactions are headed and so by the time Jesus heals a demon possessed man at the end of chapter 9 nobody is surprised to hear the Pharisees outright slander Jesus the crowd was amazed and said nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel But the Pharisees said it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. And so if we chart the progress of this, we've gone from evil thoughts to evil words and now evil actions. The Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. The elites have made their assessment. But it's not only the elites The average Joseph and Josephine, they've made their assessment too. And it's just as it was with the Pharisees. There have been signs along the way. Like when Jesus is approached by the synagogue ruler. Do you remember? He comes and he kneels before Jesus. My daughter is sick. So Jesus says, okay. And Jesus goes back to his house. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl's not dead, but asleep. Here's their assessment. But they laughed at him. And then we saw in chapter 10, when Jesus sends his disciples on mission, repeatedly Jesus warns them to expect a hostile reception, and he's the cause of it. So, chapter 10, verse 18, on my account, you'll be brought before governors. And verse 22 of chapter 10, you'll be hated by everyone because of me. The elites have made their assessment. The people have made their assessment. The world has cancelled Jesus. Which, if you ask me, makes chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 15 all the more remarkable. Look closely. Aware of this, so Jesus is aware that they're now plotting to take his life. He's aware of this. What does he do? Well, he withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. Now, it's very easy to presume that because Jesus is the Son of God, that he can simply brush off all of this accumulated opposition. Because after all, if he can raise the dead, then surely he can rise above his critics. But I want you to remember that Jesus is both divine and human. He would have felt this rejection very deeply, and who would blame him? And yet, by way of practical implication, despite being cancelled... Despite being treated with absolute contempt, look how Jesus responds. I think this is so instructive for us. And I have to say, speaking for myself, I can't honestly say that I'd react with this same level of generosity. Having removed himself from the immediate situation, the conflict with the Pharisees, Jesus does what he's been doing all along. Ever since he finished teaching the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continues doing good, even To a fickle crowd that's probably rejected him. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. All who were ill. It's almost a throwaway line. The elites have made their assessment. The crowds have made their assessment. But now you and I need to hear the father's assessment. Whose opinion matters? Verse 18. Here is my servant... Whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. And Matthew's quoting here from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah chapter 42, if you're taking notes. And originally this was God's description. It was his assessment of his people, the nation of Israel. But now, right at the point where Jesus has been rejected by people, both high and low, Matthew reveals the ultimate target for Isaiah's prophecy. And it's the Lord Jesus, the Father's chosen servant. That God's Messiah was rejected indicates just how misguided popular opinion can be. Despite this, Throughout our series, Jesus has been consistently kind and patient and merciful. Even in last week's controversy over the Sabbath, he keeps being baited by the Pharisees. But what tips the controversy over the edge is that Jesus is determined to do good. Because what's better to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? And so he tells the man, stretch out your hand. But just as opposition to Jesus begins to maintain, sorry, to gain some momentum, Matthew carefully presents to us a very different perspective. It's a little bit like aerial photography. It lifts you up from your current perspective and gives you a much, much broader view. And so Matthew brings us out of the immediate conflict and he reveals ultimate reality to us here is my servant whom I have chosen the one I love in whom I delight it's the ultimate commendation for Jesus and I just want you to look closely how the father adores the son look at the words the one I love it's such evocative language the one in whom I delight And the father is overjoyed by the son. He's elated, he's thrilled, he's besotted, he's ecstatic, he's chuffed, he's enraptured. Words run out before we can adequately capture the depth of the father's love here. But why does this matter to us? It might be nice to hear it, this assessment of the father of the son, but where does it touch the ground for you and me? Well, I'll tell you where it touches the ground. You and I, we live in a world that's turned against Jesus. And Matthew wants to reassure us that so far as the Father is concerned, nothing has changed. Here is my servant, whom I've chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. And we need this reassurance because we live and breathe a culture that places no value on God's Son, We live and breathe a culture that shapes us to be like the world instead of being shaped into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. We need this reassurance. The world's assessment, Jesus must die. The Father's assessment, behold my servant. But what's this servant going to do? I've called it the son's assignment. Look with me at the back end of verse 18 and following. I'll put my spirit on him and he, this chosen servant, will proclaim justice to the nations. He won't quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. And so the servant, his assignment is characterised by two things, justice and mercy. So look with me carefully, verse 18, he's going to proclaim justice, that's good, but he's going to go better than that. Look at verse 20, he's going to bring justice. And alongside justice, the servant is going to exercise mercy. Verse 20, a bruised reed he won't break, a smouldering wick he won't stuff out. These are metaphors for broken people. So we've got justice and mercy, mercy and justice. And throughout our series, Jesus has been doing just this. The very first thing Jesus does after he finishes the Sermon on the Mount, think of the moment for a second. The crowd says, we've never heard anything like this before. We're expecting high fives. Jesus is greeted by a man with leprosy, a bruised reed. But instead of treating this bruised reed as a hindrance to his assignment, Jesus stops, he makes time, he reaches out and he heals the man. Because this is justice, righting wrongs. And it's justice with mercy. Are you willing, the man asked. Jesus says, yeah, I'm willing. I'll do it. And it was the same with the bleeding woman. It was the same with the blind men. It was the same with the demon possessed. On each occasion, Jesus accommodates these people. He brings justice and mercy to people the world considers to be a waste of time. And if only that, we have here a pattern to follow. But as you step back from that, you'd have to think, wouldn't you, that under normal circumstances, someone that brings justice and mercy like this, this ought to be good news. And particularly so for a world that's longing for justice and mercy, we too are the same. But so far as Jesus' ministry is concerned, we have to confront the fact that Jesus is being ignored. I was actually I was thinking about it this week. If you analysed Jesus' ministry performance, I hesitate to put it in those terms, but let's run with it for a second. If you were to analyse his ministry performance by some of the measures that get applied by high-profile churches today, you'd have to conclude that Jesus' ministry was a failure because nobody listens to him. So what should he have done? Well, judging by the techniques that get employed by some large ministry organisations, I'll tell you what Jesus should have done to connect with culture. He needs to turn up the volume. He needs to make himself more relevant. He needs more hype. He needs more celebrity appeal, more energy. Tighter jeans probably wouldn't hurt. Maybe a brand ambassador, social media account, all of those things. But compare that to verse 19, and this is such an important corrective for you and me. What do we find impressive versus what does Jesus find impressive? How does the kingdom that Jesus is building advance in the world? Verse 19, he won't quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. Jesus is not an agitator. He's not a reactionary. He's not going to be at a protest carrying placards. That's not his style. But it would be a big mistake to think that the Lord's servant is weak or ineffective. He might be rejected by the world, but that says more about our rebellion than it does about the chosen one. And I say that because seen against the broader sweep of Matthew's account... Seen against the broader sweep of of scripture. Right at the point where rejection of the Lord's servant reaches its high point at his crucifixion. This is the moment when for sinful people, the Lord's servant brings justice through to victory. Living up to the name he was given way back in chapter 1, do you remember? You are to give him the name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. Bringing justice through to victory. And so it's in this name, verse 21, that the nations will put their hope. And it's at this dark point in Matthew's account, as the world rejects Jesus, as it does today, for our reassurance, we're reminded of the only opinion that matters. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. This is the one we look to. And so in the words of Psalm 33, we pray, May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, for we put our hope in you. Whose opinion matters? Who will you look to? Matthew encourages us to consider the only opinion that matters. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight let me pray as words again from psalm 33 we wait in hope for the lord for he is our help and shield in him our hearts rejoice for we trust in his name And so, Father, we do give you thanks and we thank you for your patience towards us that even when we forget, you're hard at work and by your spirit training us to look to your son. So we pray, Father, as we go into another week, would you keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? Would you fill us with hope as we wait for his return? And in the meantime, we pray that you'd encourage us to live lives of joyful obedience as we place our trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.